This podcast is supported by Audible. To find out how you can get a free audiobook of your choice just for trying Audible, check out audibletrial.com slash lead. This is Adam Grant, and you're listening to Leader Lab. I'm Adam Grant. I'm an organizational psychologist to Moonlights as a Wharton professor. And and I guess Daylights as a as a book author is that what we'll, we'll call it? I guess so. We're running out of different periods of the day, of the day but yes. Afternoon lights, maybe. I don't. Who knows? That that's a, that's um that's a weird one. So, but but the when, when he's not teaching, when he's not doing research, he is plugging and talking about his awesome book, Give and Take. Um, Adam, tell me a little bit about, about the book. We'll get into the gist of kind of the argument, but what, led, what in your research led you to want to write it as a more practitioner-focused book? Well, you know, I've always thought that part of the goal of social science is to produce knowledge that people can use to live more rewarding lives. And part of what actually brought me into the psychology field was reading a few trade books that took some of the best ideas in social science and really made them both interesting and actionable. And after I got tenure, I felt like I no longer had an excuse to just be writing for a bunch of other academics. And I felt like at that point I had both a responsibility and an opportunity to try to have a broader impact. You know, it's ironic. We could go into this whole other diatribe about the um, the flood of really good practitioner and regular people oriented stuff that comes out after tenure it just it's just it's an it makes me wonder about the system but we're we're glad you did as i said earlier the the book is give and take and if you haven't sort of heard the gist of what it's about number 1 i don't know where you've been in the past several months um but the book uh the book is pretty awesome and the, the gist of the book is that it's not enough to divide the world into two types of people. You kind of have to divide it into three, uh, if, from what I understand, givers, takers, and matchers. And it, tell me a little bit about, about those three and where givers uh, end up on the spectrum of success. Because the common saying is, nice guys finish last. And it doesn't seem like that holds up all the time. Yeah, that's right. So I was really struck by the fact that in many different bodies of research, there's this consistent evidence that across the world's cultures, across all of the industries that have been studied, these three styles of giving, taking, and matching just emerge over and over again as, as more or less universal. So the takers, as I call them, are the people who tend to try to get as much as possible from others, try to avoid getting, you know, in a position where they have to give anything back. And, you know, that usually means claiming a lot of credit, going out of your way to make sure that you get to do the most interesting and visible tasks, leaving all the grunt work for everyone else. On the other end of the spectrum, we have the givers. I'm not necessarily talking about the philanthropists or the volunteers, but people who, you know, every day on the job enjoy helping others and will often do it without strings attached, whether that's assisting their colleagues or providing mentoring, sharing knowledge, maybe making introductions. And I find that the third style, being a matcher, is the most common that relatively few of us are pure takers or pure givers, although we might be in some of our interactions, but most of the people most of the time follow this matching norm where they're looking for quid pro quo, an even balance of give and take. So if I do you a favor, I want an equal one back. If you do me a favor, I feel like I'm in debt until I've settled the score. And as you know from reading the book, 
one of the things that I was interested in is which, which group is the worst when it comes to success and job performance, and the givers did most often finish last. You know, if you go out of your way to help your colleagues in engineering or in medicine or in sales, and you're just really caring and giving, then you can often run out of time and energy to get your own work done and maybe be exploited by a few takers too. And yet, the givers were also more likely to finish first. So the worst performers, but also the best performers, whether you go to engineering, medicine, sales, or lots of other occupations, the highest producing, the most effective people in most professions are also the helpful and generous among us. And so, you know, I guess the punchline here would be good, good guys have a higher probability of finishing last than the rest of us, but they also have a higher probability of finishing first. <laughs> so nice guys finish last and finish first, and everybody else finishes somewhere in the middle. Now, I'll tell you, um, one of the things that I uh, loved and also didn't really like about the book is I kept questioning myself and my own motives ever since the first chapter on, well, am I a giver? Am I really just a matcher? The statistics say I'm probably a matcher, right? I like to think that that no one out there thinks they're a taker, even when they really are. Even even the folks you talk about, like uh, our, our best friends over at Enron. But how do you know, or, or how can you start to get insights into whether or not you're a giver, a matcher, or a taker? Well, by virtue of the fact that you even wondered, I would say that uh, that's a sign that you're probably not a taker. Oh, that's good news. <laughs> Takers tend to be very confident in their own judgments of themselves, especially when they're positive. So. You know, I think self-awareness on this dimension is really hard because ultimately whether you're a giver, taker, or a matcher is in the eye of the beholder. You know, you, you may be able to, to shed a little bit of light on your own motives, but part of being a giver, taker, or a matcher is what kind of impact you have on the people around you. And so what you really need to do is get them to hold up a mirror and find out from your colleagues, the people who work with and above you and below you, how do they see you? You know, do they feel that you are – frequently, you know, helping without asking for anything back? Do they perceive you as always trading favors evenly with, like, a credit and debit system? Or, you know, do they think you're one of those takers who's just trying to get, 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 and it's all about me? And I think that feedback is, is probably the only reliable path to self-awareness. Well, it's, that's good, and I guess it's kind of hard to do that in yourself, so I've got to get out and ask all my friends the hard questions, which, though, if I would say if they're givers, wouldn't they just want to be nice to me and tell me I am too, uh, you know? That turns out to be a common misconception about givers, actually. Really? Yeah, so, you know, whether you're nice or not turns out to be pretty independent of how helpful you are, uh, in part because, you know, there's this personality trait called agreeableness, which captures, you know, are you warm and welcoming and polite and friendly? versus a little bit more you know, skeptical, critical, and challenging. And that, I think about that as sort of your social veneer, right? When, when you first meet somebody, the vibe you pick up is, you know, are they friendly or are they more aloof? But, you know, your, your, your intentions and your motives are totally separate from that. And so you will find some people that are, are really agreeable takers. Those are what I call the fakers, you know, who are, who are sort of nice to your face and then stab you in the back. And then you also have the disagreeable givers, and these are the ones who will give you the most honest feedback, typically. The people who might be gruff and tough, but at the end of the day, have your best interests at heart. Hmm. No, it makes so, sense. So, you know, I guess the, 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 the best answer to your question is to say, you know, the agreeable givers might sugarcoat a little bit. The disagreeable givers tend to tell it like it is. 
Mm. And and I'll confess that was a bit of a plant comment because I loved that concept that that agreeable. Even though we tend to judge people as as givers or takers, nice or not, based on agreeableness, it actually doesn't have much to do with their um, generosity, which I thought was a really interesting finding from all of your research. Now now let me ask you. Let's let's assume I go out, I talk to all of my friends, and I find out great news. I'm a giver, but that's I'm still not out of the woods because I could be one of the givers at the bottom end of the success. Uh, success spectrum, or I could be at the top. And how do I? How do you tell the difference between those type of people? And how, if you are a giver, do you uh, try and be the ones that aren't finishing last? Well, I think that a lot of the givers who get in trouble, if you look at the evidence, are the ones who give indiscriminately. Who you know try to help all the people all the time with all the requests. And you know, I don't, I don't think that's tenable or sustainable for most mere mortals which is all of us. And if you look at the data, one of the things that comes out pretty consistently is successful givers are thoughtful. You know, instead of just saying yes to everything, what they do is they say, okay, I'm going to have clear boundaries and priorities about who I help, how I help, and when I help. So, you know, like in, in my world, in the, I guess, the moments where I try to act as much of, as, as much of a giver as I can, I always know that my family comes first, my students second, my colleagues third, and everybody else fourth. And that means each time a request comes in, I first ask myself, is this going to compromise my ability to contribute to my family? And then if the answer is no, how about my students and then my colleagues? And if I've you know, been able to, to sustain my ability to contribute to those groups, then I'll, you know, I'll, I'll consider the request. And then you know, as far as the, the how and the when, I think that a lot of people try to give in lots of different ways and find themselves stretched really thin. It's much more productive to be a specialist than a generalist and say, okay, you know, I get a lot of energy from connecting other people and making introductions. Or, you know, I'm really skilled at sharing a particular kind of knowledge. And if you specialize in that kind of giving, you get better at it over time. It becomes faster and easier. And people stop bothering you with miscellaneous requests because if you're the connector, they don't want to, you know, sort of miss out on the opportunity to benefit from your connections by asking you for something different. And then, the, you know, the, the when question is really just about, about blocking time and making sure that you have time set aside to get your own work done and pursue your own ambitions as opposed to just dropping everything for everyone else. No, it makes sense. And, I, you know, I can think back to conversations that uh, I've had with my wife and that she's had with me about uh, spending way too much time helping out other people and not enough time in, in a home, et cetera, et cetera. So, you know, it's and I don't even know that I would technically classify as a giver. Odds are I'm a matcher. Um, but I think everybody kind of struggles with that idea of not having those priority questions of who who is first, second, third, fourth. And if I'm going to give my time, does it not compromise those. I, I want to actually shift a little bit from giving in a way I, I, I hate to call this from giving to getting or from or, or getting enlisting the help of givers maybe. But I, one of the things I found absolutely most fascinating about the book was when you're trying to get help from people, um, there's an age old uh, piece of advice from Benjamin Franklin that actually um, adds up into research, which is one of the best ways is to start by asking for people's advice. Talk a little bit about that idea. Well, it's interesting, David. I think that in a way, this is not what I would have expected it to be because I used to view seeking advice as a little bit of a sign of weakness. You know, you don't have all the answers and you have to go and admit that to someone. And then I read this research by Katie Lillianquist that completely turned my assumptions upside down. What Katie argues is that advice seeking is one of the best ways to turn an adversary into an advocate. And it's particularly useful in situations where you want to have influence but don't have any authority. 
such as you know if you're negotiating your salary with your employer and you don't have other offers. So what you do here is, is first of all, you know, let's say we, we take the salary negotiation situation. I, I would say you go to somebody who's either a boss or a mentor, and you say, look, I, I have this goal of hitting this salary target. You know, and I, I, I'm willing to do whatever it takes to contribute, you know, to earn it. And I know you're somebody who's been very successful around here, and I would love some of your advice and recommendations about how to, you know, achieve my goal. And what you find is three things tend to happen when you make that advice request. The first thing is you flatter your boss or your mentor because, to paraphrase Benjamin Franklin, we all admire the wisdom of people who come to us for advice. They have really good taste, right? <laughs> so, yeah, they're feeling good about you when, when you come to them for advice. They feel special and important, even if they're a taker, because giving advice is not difficult. And then the second thing that happens is, in order to give you advice, they have to take a walk in your shoes and look at the situation from your perspective so that they can you know, give you some effective guidance on how to handle it. And what that means is they will typically start to identify and maybe even empathize. So, you know, thinking back to when they were trying to negotiate a salary or sort of being able to relate to your position a little bit. And then between feeling good about you and understanding your position, oftentimes they will step up and, and start to help you make it happen, whether that's through just giving good recommendations or even standing up and trying to pitch the case for you. And, you know, I think that that, that is a huge benefit of advice seeking. Oh, no. And, and there's a, if you don't believe – to listeners, if you don't believe the, the research or the wisdom of Benjamin Franklin, there's an amazing story in the book about a woman who was basically facing having to leave her job or having to move away from her MBA program. And it ended up turning into seats on a private jet for her every week so she could finish the program. It's a fascinating story about the power of just kind of asking for advice. Well, David, you've certainly done your homework, and that, that actually happened in the first negotiation class I ever taught, and you know, Annie was just one of the most brilliant negotiators I know, and it wasn't with the usual techniques of recruiting all these other offers and you know, developing this extremely strong position. It was going in and making a genuine request for advice and <laughs> that opened doors that I don't think could have ever been opened with traditional negotiation strategies. Yeah, it's a, it's an absolutely crazy story and made made me quite jealous having never ridden on a private jet, but I guess I'm not asking the right people for advice. Well, that makes two of us. <laughs> now, um, there's another really cool – well, I, I found it really cool because I'm kind of a nerd with uh, organizational behavior stuff. But there's a really cool chapter in the challenges of finding uh, potential, finding talent in an organization and how givers and takers kind of approach that differently. Talk, talk a little bit about what makes it so hard to pick um, – high potential individuals and, and how givers and takers have approached it? Well, I think that a lot of times when people are, are looking to sort of figure out, okay, who's going to be a star, who should I hire, what they do is they, they end up sort of putting a little bit of themselves into the process. So if you're a taker, if somebody's really talented, you might see that person as a threat. And if you're a matcher, one of the things that you might do is say, well, look, you know, I'm going to invest in people to the extent that they show signs of potential, and then I will reciprocate, and that's the best way to protect my time. What givers tend to do differently is they tend to see the potential in others and sort of look for signs that somebody could be better than they might initially appear. And, you know, sometimes those assumptions turn out to be completely inaccurate, but in many cases, what givers are able to do is by seeing the potential in others, they actually bring out that potential and create self-fulfilling prophecies. 
in the sense that when, when givers end up sort of investing in somebody who appears to be, you know, sort of average, they tend to set high goals and give that person a lot of valuable coaching and advice and oftentimes actually motivate that person then to achieve the standard and meet a level of potential that didn't seem possible. And there's some really interesting studies that back that up in Chapter 4 of Give and Take that you know, I've, I've experienced in my own life on the receiving end, having worked with givers who saw potential in me in places that I was pretty sure it didn't exist. And you know, it's been really interesting to watch some of the best leaders I know sort of follow those principles and develop talent among people who seem to be pretty darn ordinary. Hmm. No, and I, I think it, it has some interesting ramifications, even from a larger a- HR perspective, about the power of self-fulfilling prophecy and the people that we put on high potential lists become high potential almost because we're on that list. So is it the right strategy to even try and separate them out? Or maybe the right strategy is to do what one of the accounting professors in the book sort of did and take the approach that everyone is a high potential. We'll label them all that, and then we'll see. What, we'll give them all those opportunities and see what happens. Yeah, I think there's a strong case to be made for that approach within reason, of course, because we don't want to start betting on people who you know, don't have the qualifications or the motivation for a position. But I think that in many cases, we overlook people who are extremely hardworking and extremely giving who don't initially show the size of potential that we think we're looking for. Yeah, no, I, I absolutely, I totally agree. And I, I think it's, it's at least a start to start opening up some of those trainings and things like that to anyone who has the motivation to, to try it. And if they if they um, bomb out, but there's, it's, it's a, um, it's an interesting issue. And it's one that I, I've kept sort of an eye on. I, you know, I'm fascinated with uh, the areas of leadership, innovation and strategy. And I feel like developing people is obviously one of the biggest calls uh, for a leader, which was one of the reasons for um, wanting to talk about that, wanting to talk about the book. The, the other thing I think is really important in that leadership role that your book doesn't outwardly um, come out and talk about, but um, hints at and especially shows in relation to givers is the idea of um, instituting purpose and bringing people uh, a sense of purpose in the work they're doing, particularly a sense of being able to help. And I, I would not, I'm sure you talk about this story all the time, but I would not forgive myself if I didn't ask you to tell our listeners about the story, about call centers, and, and one in particular with a very unique sign that showed the lack of purpose going on in some call centers uh, and how that was restored. Yeah, this is a hard story to, uh, to avoid and to tell with a straight face. You wrote about it, so you, clearly you wanted to talk about it all the time. Guilty as charged. <laughs> well, I did have the experience 10 years ago going into a call center at a university where one of the callers had posted a sign that said, doing a good job here is like wetting your pants in a dark suit. You get a warm feeling, but no one else notices. And I didn't know whether to laugh or cry, so I did what every researcher is trained to do. I took a picture. And I, I think that, you know, the sign was, was pretty clear in, in sending a message that, you know, the caller who posted at least felt like, you know, there, there was really nobody who appreciated and valued the work that he did. And the solution to that problem that a group of students and I designed along with the manager at the time, Howard Hebner, was to bring in a scholarship student who talked just for five minutes about how he wanted to attend that university, he couldn't afford the out-of-state tuition. And then because of the funds that the callers raised, he was able to go to his dream school and it had really changed his life. And he just wanted to really thank the callers for it. It was a randomized controlled experiment. Some of the callers got to meet the student, others didn't. And the average caller spiked 142% in weekly minutes on the phone and 171% in weekly revenue, all from a five-minute interaction. And there were, I think, two parts of that that were really interesting. One was that the effect was most pronounced among the callers who described themselves as givers. 
you know, if you're a giver, one of your core goals at work is to try to make a difference. And it wasn't until the caller saw that scholarship student that they really felt that the money they raised was having an impact. And, you know, it really helped them avoid burnout and, and renew their sense of energy and purpose and meaning at work. The other effect, which is equally interesting to me, is that it actually nudged a lot of the takers and matchers in the giving direction. Because, you know, you could see the scholarship student and empathize with that person and realize him depending on you. And, you know, I think that what happened as a result of that was some of the callers in our data ended up saying, you know what, I want to work harder and smarter and longer in order to, you know, fulfill my commitment to these people and really help them out. And so they became a little bit more giving once they saw their impact. Hmm. No, it's, it's absolutely fascinating to me. The, the idea, I think it ties into the ideas that we've, um, we talk about a lot with purpose in a leadership role, but it also I think it's fascinating the idea that we seem to be driven by a natural motivation to give, even if we're matchers and takers when the opportunity presents itself to be more giving. Um, it can have some really awesome um, effects on our performance and on our behavior. Yeah, that's right. I think that you know what's, what's interesting about giving, taking, and matching to me is that these are choices we make in every interaction. And that means that, you know, there are even some of the worst takers among us have moments where they act like givers, although they probably do that less often than many of our colleagues. And, you know, it is possible to understand, you know, what are the triggers that motivate them to have those more generous and helpful moments. And then, you know, if we can understand those, we can sometimes elicit more giving behavior. Yeah, absolutely, and, and positively affect not just the world, but probably the, the research supports the idea of productivity, profitability, all of those things. I, I, if it's okay with you, I want to shift a bit from the book uh, to you and ask you a couple questions. Um, what are you reading right now? That is a great question. Um, you know, it's interesting, actually. My reading load has totally shifted to books that are forthcoming. And, you know, I guess uh, I, I was in this position, you know, a while back of, of reaching out to authors and asking if they would read and consider writing a few sentences. And now I, I get to try to pay that forward a little bit. So <laughs> I've, uh, I, I, I'm hoisted by my own petard here. I, I, I've, I've just read a bunch of books, though, that I think are really interesting. Uh, one is called The Generosity Network. And it's a book about how to facilitate uh, successful sort of groups of fundraising and, and help mobilize resources toward important causes. And I think it's, it's a great read, interesting and extremely practical. That's by Jeff Walker, Jennifer McRae, and Carl Weber. Um, another one that I really enjoyed is uh, called Springboard by my colleague Richard, uh, Richard Schell. And Springboard is, is all about finding your own definition of success and, and figuring out sort of what career and what activities are going to be a good fit for what you're passionate about. Uh, I can give you a couple others, too, if you want to keep going. Yeah, no, go for it. I need a good summer reading list. Excellent. All right, so uh, another one that, that I thought was, that was really interesting is Why Quitters Win by Nick Tassler. And this one is about why the ability to give up on projects and walk away from commitments is actually a, a hallmark of success for individuals and companies, which obviously in a lot of ways flies in the face of conventional wisdom. Oh, totally. But there, there was a Freakonomics podcast about that maybe a year, year and a half ago that was fascinating. So I, I think this would be too. Yeah, I, I, really, I really thought Nick's book was terrific. And then Sean Acor uh, has Before Happiness coming out about – what are the, the steps that you need to put in place to increase the likelihood that you can achieve your goals and, and experience the kind of joy and meaning that a lot of people are looking for? 
And I just finished up two others. One is Perfecting Your Pitch by Ron Shapiro, a world-class sports agent, uh, lawyer, and negotiation teacher who basically looks at how do you present your ideas and how do you make a case for what's important to you. And then finally, Thanks for the Feedback by Doug Stone and Sheila Heen, a sequel in a way to difficult conversations about why it's so hard to receive tough advice and constructive criticism and how to receive it better and also give it more effectively. Hmm. Yeah, it sounds fascinating. So you are, you're quite the avid reader then. You read almost as much as you give from what I understand. Uh, I, I, what I've tried to do is, uh, is integrate my giving and my reading so that <laughs> the work that I read I can help to support. Ah, there you go. That's, uh, that's awesome. And, and let's, let's talk about – so the, the book has been out for uh, about three months now, which is not a, a long period of time by anyone's stretch of the imagination. But I am sure um, that you're looking down the road and, and making some plans for um, future. What, what's next for you? That is an excellent question, and one that I haven't had much time to think about. <laughs> Sorry. Uh, I hope you know. I hope one of the next things on my plate is the chance to read your new book on creativity and innovation. I I can get you an advanced copy. That's no problem. I'll look forward to reading that. <laughs> and you know, beyond that, I, I'm looking forward to having some time this summer to to sit back and reflect a little bit about about what I want to study next and what might be topics for a future book. Oh, very cool. Well, I, whatever comes out of the future book, it's probably going to be pretty awesome um, because the first one is. I, you know, on, on this site, on this podcast, we are all about taking an evidence-based approach to leadership, innovation, and strategy. And this is one of those books that beautifully be- blends the research with practical stories, um, with even sort of counterintuitive advice, counterintuitive advice um, and stories of people getting seats on private jets. So if you want any of those things in your life, I encourage you to check out um, Give and Take by Adam Grant. Adam, thank you so much for joining us inside the Leader Lab. David, you are a giver. Thank you for the overly generous praise. 